The following lecture is provided by Biblical Training. The speaker is Dr. Douglas Moo. For more information, go to www.biblicaltraining.org. So, uh, again, it's really interesting, challenging passage, unusual text that we've been looking at, 421 to 31. We've uh, been looking just before lunch, you remember, at uh, Isaiah 54.1, a little bit of the background there, why Paul might incorporate this text with this language into his discussion at this point. Any questions on that before we move on just to the last couple of verses here? I think it's a fascinating instance of inner biblical exegesis, as we call it sometimes, reading the Genesis text, the prophetic text, bringing them together in a creative way, but, but a way that I think does, again, have respect for what's going on in those texts as well. Steve? In verse 25, uh, now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia, or however we translate that phrase. Yeah. As I was going through this and taking it through, I wondered if the reason he points to this kind of odd reference to Arabia, because it seems to come out of nowhere, is to emphasize this is an earthly place, the Jerusalem, the present Jerusalem is an earthly place, mm-hmm. emphasizing the earthliness of of that whole system. Yeah, that's a point. Yeah. That that could be, in other words, it's located geographically. We know where it is. It's a specific point on this earth uh, in contrast to this more spiritual ideal. Yeah, that's that's a certain point, Steve. Good, Good point. Finishing up then, as Paul now sort of makes more application, so you can see in verse 28, you like Isaac are children of promise. Of course, this is addressed to Galatian Gentiles. And so the important point that Paul's been making throughout uh, comes to bear here. And as in the past, there was this persecution, Paul calls it, of the uh, children of the one born according to the flesh with respect to those born by the power of the spirit. It's the same now. So, So Paul's kind of using the language pretty loosely here this language of persecution in a broad sense to talk about the opposition between these groups in the past and the kind of opposition that is now uh, arisen in the context of the Galatian churches with the agitators representing what Paul calls the present Jerusalem and insisting that the Gentiles come under the law. This, Paul says, is to go back under a condition of slavery again in contrast to the freedom and the enjoyment of the promise that they can have by remaining attached firmly to the Jerusalem above, the church focused on Jesus Christ. So we, Paul says, are children of the slave woman, not of the slave woman, but of the free woman. We've been talking about the way Paul appropriates the Old Testament here. And uh, so I'm going to introduce another theological kind of excursus at this point to talk a bit about the way New Testament writers in generally use the old, some particular focus on Paul. It is a kind of fundamental framework for the way Paul and New Testament writers engage in theology. They are people who are rooted in the Old Testament scriptures, but not only as a personal matter, being rooted in those scriptures and knowing them well, also seeking to appropriate the message of the Old Testament 
to validate their own preaching of Christ and the gospel. In other words, there is fundamental concern to maintain lines of continuity from the old to the new. And again, to to, to make the claim, as I put it a moment ago, we Christians are the ones who have the right reading of the OT. Our community is what the Old Testament ultimately is pointing toward. And in one sense, you can understand these early Christians making a claim that uh, is standing against and in contrast to the claims various other Jewish groups are making. I think particularly here of the Dead Sea Scrolls that give us evidence about the life and theology of this sectarian Jewish group that was located at Kerbet Qumran, just on the shores of the Dead Sea, hence the Dead Sea Scrolls. Here is a, a, a community of Jews, very different than Sadducees or Pharisees or some of the groups we're familiar with from the NT itself, uh, a group that's kind of uh, withdrawn out into the wilderness to build their own community there and claiming basically we are the heirs of the Old Testament promises. The Old Testament points to us as the fulfillment of what God is doing and they're engaged in a rather constant interpretation of Scripture to make that point. So how does the New Testament go about making this claim? Just several points, uh, and feel free to get involved in discussion and questions as we go through this. First, something that we, we really have a hard time proving from any particular New Testament proof texts, but something that is, is just sort of in the air, and so fundamentally assumed, it rarely comes to expression. Very high view of Scripture, that the Old Testament is uh, authoritative in what it says, that it is to be taken seriously at every point. This was standard belief among the Jews of the time. Clearly, our New Testament writers, clearly the early Christians, thoroughly bought into that way of thinking about Scripture. So, It's clear on almost every page of the NT to make a claim about the authority of the Old Testament is to make a a kind of final, conclusive claim about truth. The New Testament picks up the Old Testament in a wide variety of ways, Uh, hard even to list them all. You have explicit quotations, by which I mean a quotation introduced with an actual formula of some kind, such as in Matthew chapter 2. You have implicit quotations. That is, you have places where there is no particular introductory formula, as it is written, or something of that kind, but where there's kind of a break in the syntax and where the uh, language makes clear a quotation is intended. Matthew 27, 46 is a good example here. And you might remember that I think we had a brief discussion of how this works yesterday in Galatians 3, 10 and following. Verse 10, as it is written... But then verse 11, no one who relies on the law is justified for our God because the righteous will live by faith. I think all of our English versions put quotation marks. 
around that. There is no explicit formula there, but clearly Paul's intention is to quote the words of Habakkuk 2.4 there. While we're looking at quotations where there is a focus on the wording, it's just worthwhile to kind of remind ourselves of the complicated situation of our New Testament writers as they quote the OT. In the New Testament period, we have good evidence that the Masoretic text was a text that was widely used and available in much the form we have it today. Now, some of you may be asking, why in the world is that of any interest at all? Well, the Masoretic text, which is found actually in 9th and 10th century manuscripts, continues to be the, the basic Hebrew source on which our English translations are based. So all the English translations we've talked about here this week are translating on the basis of the Masoretic Hebrew text, particular Hebrew text, again, that we have full evidence from in the 9th and 10th centuries. But in the New Testament period, there were other Hebrew texts that existed, variant Hebrew texts that sometimes it seems our New Testament authors may be using to refer to the Old Testament as well. So, so just as today, you know, in a very rough approximation, you might, you know, analyze uh, sermons or something and find, well, sometimes the quotation is from this kind of English version and other times it's from a different English version. There are different English texts, obviously, available in our community and people may quote from one or the other. So in Paul's day, there were various forms of the Hebrew that could be used. And then you have the whole Greek tradition. Very important because, of course, our New Testament is written in Greek. And it's pretty clear that very often our New Testament writers then are using the Greek Old Testament version in their quotations. Paul, for instance, quotes from the Greek form most of the time. How do we know that, you might ask? Well, because a lot of Paul's quotations agree precisely with the wording, the sequence of words that you find in what we call the Septuagint. From Latin Septuaginta, 70, based on the tradition that this particular Greek text was translated by 70 people in the third, second centuries BC. But again, we have other first century Greek texts as well. And then finally, we have some other languages, particularly Aramaic beginning to be important. At the time of Jesus, many of the Jews had lost their ability to understand Hebrew. Uh, It was not sort of the common language any longer. It was sort of more of a religious language and average Jews often could not understand Hebrew well. And so naturally, in order to communicate with the larger Jewish population, there was uh, a movement to put the Hebrew scriptures into Aramaic. This was underway in the New Testament period, and it could be that sometimes our New Testament authors are quoting from the Aramaic. This gets into some technical detail we don't have time really to consider here, but 
you know, one of the practical points, I guess, is this. Even when you're working from your English, and we, we, we saw that already in one of the quotations in Galatians, you remember, you look at the wording of the quotation as we have it in the New Testament. And then you look back at, in your English Bible, at the, the text that's being quoted, and they aren't the same. The wording is different. Paul quotes a text according to a form or with certain wording that is different than what you seem to have in the actual English text of that Old Testament text. What's going on is probably one of these kinds of issues. That you have a Masoretic text that is being translated into English in the OT. Let's take Deuteronomy 27, 26, which is the illustration we looked at yesterday. All the English translations in translating Deuteronomy 27, 26 will uh, work from the Masoretic text. and They'll basically be translating the Hebrew there. But it might be that Paul, in his quotation, is simply repeating the Greek version of his day. And that Greek version might differ a little bit from the Hebrew. When the Greek translation came along, it might have not followed the Hebrew all that closely. It might have introduced words or subtracted words or paraphrased or something. And so you have Paul quoting that particular Greek form of the text where there is a difference from the Hebrew. And hence our English Bibles, and that shows up as a difference in that way. So the the thing to remember here is that the New Testament is written at a time when there was a certain fluidity in the Old Testament textual tradition. And one of the things that scholars have recognized more and more over the last few years is that while this Masoretic text indeed is very old, and again, these 9th and 10th century manuscripts, we've now been able to verify, reproduce a text that certainly was alive and well in the time of Christ, and that remains the foundation text, uh, many uh, scholars now recognize that where you have a difference between the Septuagint and the Masoretic text, where these two are, are different in their wording. Masoretic text here, Septuagint here. And again, uh, let's say, and just throwing this out as an example, that you have the word all introduced here that is not here in the Masoretic text. Okay, problem, you know, what's going on here? They're different. Well, maybe the Septuagint translators sort of arbitrarily added the word. Maybe it's just a mistake in copying or something. Uh, We don't know how that word got there. What's happened over the last four years, particularly as we've looked at the Dead Sea Scrolls carefully, is that we've discovered that this variant Septuagint reading actually is based on a Hebrew text different from the Masoretic text. In other words, the Septuagint has not arbitrarily introduced a difference. It's not made a mistake that rather the Greek at that point is working with a different Hebrew text. And we're recognizing that more and more. So you will find, for instance, in the NIV, the ESV, and most of the contemporary English versions, footnotes at the bottom of the page. Anyone know about footnotes in your Bibles? I know no one pays attention to them. We translators work hard at them. We, we know that uh, no one's probably ever going to read them. 
I'm trying to, I, I said I could, you know, find an example quickly here, and I'm taking my time. I'd just like to give you a, a, a clear instance of how this is. First Samuel is a good place to look because there's a lot of textual stuff going on there. Let me flip over there quickly. Yeah, here's an example. Footnote on um, 2 Samuel 8.4. If you look at the footnote there in the NIV, and it might be similar in some of the other versions, there's a footnote about the text there. In the text we read, David captured a thousand of his chariots, seven thousand charioteers, and so forth. If you look down at the note, it says this, Septuagint, see Dead Sea Scrolls and First Chronicles 18.4, Masoretic text captured 1,700 of his charioteers. We have the policy in the NIV that we, anytime we depart from the consonantal text, the, the basic Hebrew text of the Masoretic text, we indicate that in a footnote. So you can be confident we're following the Masoretic text any place where there's not a footnote. And what this footnote is saying, here we've decided that we think the reading of the Septuagint is more likely the original reading because it's reflecting a Hebrew manuscript we found at uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls. The bottom line of all this is that we need to look carefully and yeah, have to some degree concern about finding differences in the wording when we have a New Testament quotation of the old. But these are the kinds of, of factors that explain why that happens and why we can't always be sure about what that Old Testament text really was. In other words, maybe Paul's version of the quote has, has the better text. Who knows? It's possible. Not because it's the Greek, but because it's reflecting a different Hebrew. So then, is the Hebrew Bible Septuagint older than the Masoretic text? It's not clearly older, no. I don't think anyone would want to say that. Have you named that? I mean, is, is there a... There's no, because it doesn't exist as a actual text. Yeah. There, there's no particular name for it. The Old Hebrew, people talk about the Old Hebrew and the Old Greek, but there's no particular technical name for it, Wesley, as far as I know, at least. Yeah. Yes, right. If you refresh our memories, uh, it's been 10 years, the, the kind of history, the gist of the history of the MT, Ms. Ray. I'm not sure I can. I don't know all that much about it. These were manuscripts that Codex Leningradus, I think is the key one, 10th century manuscript containing the entire Hebrew OT. The Masoretes were people who took the Hebrew and sort of codified it, gathered it together, and put in a lot of the accents and vowel points that we now have, which weren't, weren't there originally. Hebrew is a funny language that way. The basic language is written with consonants, and then the vowels are indicated by little dots and squiggles and lines that, that are underneath the consonants. It's a very fascinating language that way. But the Masoretes, again, were the people who put that together and uh, again, the evidence uh, for that is, is in these later manuscripts. Even though the manuscript is 10th century, you know, we've again found manuscripts that date back way into the early New Testament period and before the New Testament period, indeed, that those same readings are found. So it's not like it's, you know, just a text created at a later date. 
Is this the same thing that's on in, well, you put my plain words passage, uh, Hebrews 1, 7, um, 1, 6, that all, that all God's angels worship him? Yeah, that's the, what, the, the Deuteronomy 32, isn't it? Uh, yeah, that's, that's a tough verse textually where the um, different translations, uh, the different textual forms go different ways on it. Was it 32.3? 32.43. 43. Well, I knew there was a three in there somewhere. So, Okay, yeah. And if he rejoice you nations with his people, he will avenge the blood of his servants. But we have a couple of notes there. Make his people rejoice you nations. And our note here is Masoretic text has rejoice you nations with his people. The Dead Sea Scrolls and the Septuagint say people and let all the angels worship him. That's the part that Hebrews quotes that's not in all of our English Bibles, although it's in some of them, I think. Some of the English Bibles do include it because it's a tough textual issue. Yeah. And again, note the wording there. Dead Sea Scrolls see also Septuagint. So in other words, it's not only the Greek, but also there's a Hebrew manuscript we've discovered in the Dead Sea Scrolls that have that, that give it greater weight. Yeah, so that's exactly the issue there. All right, let's move on. Other ways that the New Testament writers appropriate the OT. Uh, interesting, we referred to this text a little bit earlier this morning. Direct reference. Particularly important for estimating the Old Testament influence on the New are what we call allusions. In other words, where the New Testament writer will not kind of break off what the New Testament writer is saying to introduce a quotation directly or indirectly, but where the wording the New Testament author has chosen is clearly influenced by the Old Testament text in one place or another. I'm just illustrating here from Matthew 2, Matthew's description of the, the Magi who come to worship the infant Jesus, how his wording here picks up some Old Testament passages. And so there are allusions woven into this. These allusions are always tricky. There can be debate about whether there's a genuine allusion or not. And often we miss them because we just don't know our Old Testaments that well. You know, the language isn't that familiar to us. And so we don't automatically or immediately detect the allusion. But those are really important. There are far more Old Testament allusions than there are Old Testament quotations. They're really important in helping us underestimate. I'm not going to even talk about echo because I'm not sure that's a category that's really helpful. Uh, a number of scholars are using it these days, but uh, I think its definition is, is fraught. Conceptual influence. In other words, the Old Testament revelation in many ways provides the scaffolding, the framework for New Testament thinking about things. So the New Testament authors, you know, never try to define monotheism or covenant or sacrifice. These are all just assumed as fundamental categories. And then some detect structural influence here and there, that some of the way in which our New Testament writings are actually ordered and structured may sort of intend to reflect Old Testament influence. A lot of people, for instance, identify five discourses of Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew. And they say, you know, that's interesting that we have Jesus, the 
new lawgiver, as some would call him, speaking in these five discourses, just as Moses, the original lawgiver, has his work divided into five volumes. So those things might be important. The Old Testament influences the New Testament in quite a significant variety of ways that uh, sometimes come to the surface, but often it's like the tip of an iceberg. Yeah, you've, you've got the evidence there at the surface of what's going on, it's a quotation, but there's a lot going on behind the scenes sometimes that we fail to appreciate, but we need to appreciate to fully understand the New Testament message. Just a few comments on the way in which the New Testament writers appropriate the Old Testament here. I'm not going to go into the the technical details of Midrash and Pesher here, but I think it is worthwhile distinguishing between what I'm calling appropriation techniques and hermeneutical axioms. Let me kind of explain what I mean by this. Paul and the other New Testament writers by the way they quote the OT, indicate that they're using a lot of the same techniques their fellow Jews at the time are using. They use wordplay, for instance. In the beginning of Romans 4, Paul quotes Genesis 15, 6. Abraham believed God, it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And later on, he quotes from Psalm 32, which uses that same word, reckon. And it's surely not by chance that that's the same. That's a, a very common phenomenon, a very common technique that the Jews use. We can, isolate, we can you know, quote this OT text and we can identify it and associate it with this other Old Testament text on the basis of common words. So again, at that level, Paul and the New Testament writers are much like the Jews. And this is the sort of point that someone like Peter Enns has emphasized repeatedly in recent... Anyone know Peter Enns or what he's doing? He was got into trouble at Westminster Seminary, was asked to leave, and has sort of been trying to justify his view ever since by becoming more and more radical. Kind of sad, in my own estimation, about the, the direction he's gone. But he makes a lot of the similarity between what the New Testament writers are doing and what the Jewish writers at the time were doing, and says, basically, you know, the New Testament writers were, were people of their own time. They were using scripture and appropriate it basically the same way the other Jews in their period of time were. And we can't hold the New Testament writers to any kind of higher standard as if they're quoting the Old Testament in accordance with what it really means. We just don't need to worry about that. We shouldn't be bothered with it because the New Testament writers are doing what their Jewish contemporaries are doing. I think one response to that is to say, well, yes, in some ways, at some level, there is a similarity But more fundamental are the hermeneutical axioms that sort of drive the interpretation. That's what we were talking about earlier this morning. How can Paul read this Genesis narrative as he does? Well, at one level, you know, Sarah represents the Jerusalem above. Hagar is Mount Sinai in Jerusalem. That at the level, again, of the text is very similar to what other Jews of his day are doing. No question about it. What's critical that I was arguing earlier, however, is that Paul, in that kind of identification, is guided by fundamental theological assumptions. 
about the way in which the Bible holds together. That the Old Testament ultimately finds its fulfillment in Christ, that we therefore can't understand the earlier part of the story unless we understand how the story ends. So same thing when we're reading a, a really good novel sometimes, and, and you will be reading along sequentially, you're in chapter three, and you think you're getting the ideas of what's going on, and then some revelation hits in chapter 20, and you realize, oh, I need to go back and maybe reread chapter three, because now something's happened here that sheds a different light on what was going on back there. I understand the beginning of the book much better, much more deeply, much more completely in light of where the ending is now. That's why good books need to be reread. Get through them one time, see what's going on, and then you reread them because you're going to see deeper kinds of things going on. So it is in our Bibles. You really can't understand finally the beginning, the, the Old Testament part, without appreciating where the story ultimately ends up in the New Testament. So the, these are the hermeneutical axioms about the shape of Revelation, the story that the Bible is telling ultimately, the way God is revealing himself. That's what is driving the New Testament use of the old. And it's at that level it has to be judged, as it were. One way to, to, to put it is to say, let's look at the way the early Christians claim the Old Testament comes to fulfillment. And let's compare it with, with, with the way the Pharisees read it, with the way the people at Qumran, the Dead Sea Scrolls read it, and so forth. Which reading makes better sense of the Old Testament as a whole? And it's at that level, I think, we can try to defend what the early Christians did in their reading of Scripture. It is a better more consistent, more natural fit with what the Old Testament itself is saying. Now, one final point, and some of you have heard from my own teacher and longtime colleague, Walt Kaiser, recently. So uh, I don't know how much of this he taught you in the class you took recently? Some, how many talked to, to, to took the, 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 the Kaiser class? So a number of you were in there. Great, great man. Tremendous respect for him. He was one of my Hebrew and Old Testament teachers of Trinity back just after the earth cooled. Kept up with him ever since. We taught together for many years as well. He claims that when we interpret the Old Testament carefully, we're going to find that there is a pretty natural and straightforward match between the Old Testament text and what the New Testament claims it's saying. He thinks that's really important to try to, to argue that. The problem I have is that I'm not sure it just, it always works. I think there are places where the New Testament is quoting a text and applying it in a way that I don't see the Old Testament context by itself validating so I think a problem does remain, contrary to what Dr. Kaiser thinks. And ultimately, what I want to argue is for a view I call census plenier, a phrase in Latin that uh, has been used for many years, and I'm just sort of appropriating it from there, that there is a sense of fuller or deeper meaning that we can discern in the Old Testament on the basis of New Testament revelation. So that what the New Testament writers are doing is, yes, giving 
key Old Testament texts at times, a deeper or fuller or slightly different meaning or application than that text seems to have in its own original context. But again, they're doing it on the basis of an understanding of Scripture broadly in terms of the canonical development as God has now made clear how the story is ending. It's an organic development from the Old Testament then. It's rooted in key principles that you find throughout the NT2 in particular, Christocentrism, reading the scriptures in light of Christ as the center and climax of God's purposes, and the universalizing, particularly important for Paul in a letter like Galatians, where there is concern to show how the Old Testament ultimately points to inclusion of the Gentiles and to a more universal focus than simply the people of Israel. And again, it results in deepening of meaning, extension of meaning, transforming of meaning, usually based in the Old Testament itself. That is, you can usually, if you do your work carefully enough, here's where I think Dr. Kaiser makes a good point, if we do our work carefully enough, we're often going to find a little bit more justification for what the New Testament authors are doing than we first thought. I think we need to be aware of some of these issues. Some of you may be encountering them in various ways because the sort of thing Peter ends is arguing has become a kind of a widespread way of attacking traditional views of scriptural authority. And Enns has been very, very upfront about that, but others have sort of fallen into the same way of doing things. So there are certainly issues out there, and I, I fear are undercutting a sense of the authority of Scripture among some who are listening to these kinds of protests. The point I want to make here is that I think there are answers to these issues of the Old Testament and the New. A problem that's been worked on for a lot of years. If we take the kind of approach I'm suggesting here, I think, a lot of the problems, probably not all of them, that would be claiming too much, but a lot of the problems we sometimes have at least can be minimized and maybe even disappear at times. So to go back to Galatians 4 then, what I would argue is that there is a reading of the Genesis story in light of its fulfillment in Christ and Paul's understanding of the gospel, the law, Gentiles, and also via uh, reading the Genesis story in light of Isaiah 51 to 54. Not an arbitrary decision, you know, picture Paul with his Logos software program and reading the Genesis story about Sarah and doing a word search on Sarah. And, oh, the only other place that name comes up is Isaiah 51. Hmm, let me take a look there. What's going on in Isaiah? And Paul begins reading that context of Isaiah and says, oh, look at all these, you know, similarities. And look at the way this seems to foreshadow what God is now doing in Christ, you know. Uh, and he begins putting together Isaiah 51 to 54 with the Genesis story. And ultimately, we end up with the sort of tip of the iceberg, as it were, that we have in Genesis, uh, Galatians 4, 21 to 31. An instance of, an example of how our New Testament authors go about doing their work in reading the OT at times. All right, um, 
going to let you uh, take a break and talk together in groups again for a bit. Your assignment in this case is to produce a sermon outline on Galatians 4.21 to 31 that will be authentically rooted in the text of Galatians, but speak meaningfully to your contemporary congregations. So a group effort put together, a basic sermon outline, key sermon idea, maybe some main points if you have time to do that. Share ideas together. I hope that will, will help not only in uh, getting you to think well about this paragraph, but also to share ideas about uh, how you go about as pastors figuring out sermon ideas, sermon outlines, so that you can be learning from each other. Because you are the practitioners, you know more about that than I do, and you can learn more from each other than you can from me. Try to mix up your groups again, if you would. Uh, just like to facilitate good, new fellowship and conversations. Let's think about about a f- maybe... 45 minutes perhaps, 2.45. Same format we've used the last couple of days. Don't think I need to explain it any further. Thank you for listening to this lecture brought to you by biblicaltraining.org. Feel free to make copies of this lecture to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.biblicaltraining.org. There you will find the finest in evangelical teaching for use in the home and the church. And it is absolutely free. Our curriculum includes classes for new believers, lay education classes, and seminary-level classes taught by some of the finest seminary teachers drawn from a wide range of evangelical traditions.